Welcome to A Fostered Life, the show in which we explore the various facets of foster care through the voices of the many people who participate in the system. I'm your host, Christy Tennant Crispin, and this is episode 23. When people think about foster care, we usually imagine children removed from situations where they're being severely abused or neglected by their natural parents. We hear stories in the news about examples of horrific abuse or neglect, and we celebrate that these children have been rescued and placed in a loving and safe foster home. But this narrative, while certainly sometimes true, is an oversimplification of the circumstances that lead to children being removed from their parents. It might surprise you to know that about half of the children in foster care have an intellectual disability that can make caring for them difficult. If we're willing to go upstream of the foster care system, we will find families that could actually remain intact with some outside help. In the foster care world, this is known as family preservation. An important question we should be asking is, how could this child have avoided being in foster care in the first place? what can be done for a family in crisis before they become a family in crisis. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Whitney King, a behavioral specialist and CEO of Leaf Behavior Support, LLC, whose life and work is devoted to supporting families impacted by intellectual, developmental, learning, and or mental health challenges. In this conversation, we took a deep dive into some of the challenges of parenting children with special needs and how being part of someone's village of support could make all the difference in helping keep families together. I really appreciated Whitney's perspective, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. The first question that I always ask my guests is, when did your life first intersect with the foster care system? So I'd love to start there. Okay, so I personally don't have experience with the foster care system. I do know of a few people who have been in foster placement and have gone on to be adopted. They're now adults, so I've heard about it through that. But a lot of my experience and exposure, rather, I'll say, of the foster care system just comes from being in my line of work Mm -hmm. as a behavior specialist. So being in the human services field, of course, we tend to hear about the foster care system. Um, when I see statistics come up and things of that nature, I'll, you know, look into it. But that's more so of because it's my line of work. Right, right. And I would love to talk more and sort of dig into the specifics of your work. Um, maybe in a couple minutes we could circle back to that. Um, because I know from the perspective that you have in your work, which I want to get into the specifics of what you do, but you also have a perspective on families and just the, the needs of unique families. And, um, as we talked about ahead of time, we're going to focus today on, on family preservation, especially for families that are at risk. Um, right. And there is a lot of effort in the foster care world. At least there's a growing effort to get ahead of, um, the separation of children from their parents and recognizing what can be done to avoid children even going into foster care in the first place. So, you know, I'd love to hear from your perspective as you see it, what are some of the biggest contributing factors to children ending up in foster care? So as I looked over a few of the statistics as to what is prevalent in this space, it seems that abuse, Mm -hmm. neglect, and drug and alcohol abuse are some of the leading contributors to children ending up in foster placement. Mm -hmm. 
So it's a matter of, you know, um, there's been a huge spike for whatever reason in the uh, misuse of opioids, Mm -hmm. um, alcohol, um, and then just abuse and neglect. These are things that have always been around, but we're steadily seeing a spike and an increase in the abuse of these, these, you know, things. So, of course, when those things happen, you know, even as people use drugs and alcohol, it already distorts, you know, your reality mm-hmm. and things that we think are. So then that in turn leads um, people who are under the influences to turn on their families, per se, and not more than likely due to other internal things going on. You know, alcohol and drugs are just one piece of the puzzle, but then you have to take into account the person's mental well-being, you know, when they're under the influence of these things, which is then what leads to the abuse or the neglect and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as you see it, what are some things that can be done to come around families that are facing some of those things? Um, yeah, I mean, and, and does this reflect some of the families that you have worked with? Oh, absolutely. So yeah. in supporting, let's say, the intellectual and developmental community that I am uh, largely a part of, you know, a lot of the people that we support there have children. So we then do a lot of family support in that way by making sure the parent, although they are impacted with whatever diagnoses they have, ensuring that they have the necessary support to be their whole self so that then they can learn how to parent, you know, their children. And I think that's what takes place overall. A lot of parents just need to learn how to, you know, support themselves. And that's why village is so important to me Mm -hmm. because as we all know, there is no manual on parenting, whether you have a diagnosis or not, whether you uh, deal with substance abuse or not, there's just not a manual on how to deal with parenting. What I think we need to focus on is more support of parents and teaching them to be their whole selves and recognize when maybe some of their needs from Pavlov's hierarchy of needs aren't being met. Because when some of those needs aren't being met, then we seek to fill those voids in other ways. And sometimes that's how abuse and neglect, um, excuse me, uh, drug and alcohol abuse come about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oftentimes um, people can sink into depression, uh, things of that nature. So in my experience, you know, in supporting the families, you know, they may have a mental health diagnosis. So then we want to make sure they get support on the mental health side so that then they're able to come back to center and then begin doing the work for whatever their family needs. Yeah. I'd love to know what, what led you to, to kind of focus your efforts specifically in this arena of supporting families that are in stress or families that are non-traditional and um, like what kind of what kind of led you to focus on this with your work? So I am the oldest of four. My mother primarily raised us alone and that alone made us a non-traditional family. And I know my mother, I think, and today is actually her birthday. (laughs) She did the best she could with what she had, Mm -hmm. but I also know a lot of what we had was attributed to the people around us. You know, there were a lot of people around us that chimed in and provided support when my mom often had two or three jobs, Mm -hmm. you know, and things like that. So then as I went on and became an adult myself, I then went 
to have, you know, children of my own. And I primarily ended up raising my children alone after a divorce. Mm -hmm. So I had to lean into a village. So when I looked at the career that I was in, which at the time was just a special education teacher, I started to think, you know, what happens with the students post high school? What happens with the families when laws like IDEA that regulate the IEPs and the 504 plans and things of that nature aren't in place anymore for these adults. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens to those families? So I immediately wanted to know how can I be of support because it wasn't of interest to me to teach these students about ecosystems. That's not what their lives are going to look like post-high right. school. You know, yeah. um, not that it's not important for traditional students. I mean, I enjoyed it growing up, mm-hmm. learning about that stuff. However, I don't really deal with it now, so yeah. I can only imagine the population of students I was supporting, and they're definitely not, that's not what their lives look like. Right. So I really made it a point to focus on providing family and caregiver training on how to support, you know, people who had severe intellectual developmental disabilities and even some behavior challenges post high school, because if without that support, then you begin to see the whole family crumble and that's what leads to abuse and neglect in that population. Yes. And it's because the family doesn't know what to do. Yes. So my mission was really to just help prevent that stuff by providing resources and education and just being a part of that village in that way so that that can reduce those things. Because we see it a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a huge stigma already around this population of people mm-hmm. that they're severely abused and neglected, mm-hmm. you know, from paid caregivers. So imagine the ones that occur from non-paid givers, mm-hmm. you know, caregivers mm-hmm. due to them not having an outlet themselves or just simply not knowing what to do. Yeah. So one of the programs we have is um, actually called Sponsor Residential. And that's uh, it's an option, an alternative to group homes because we know institutions are no longer around. Mm-hmm. Um, in the state of Virginia, they do pride themselves on keeping everyone within the community, a natural community. So some of the options are group homes or sponsored residential homes. Well, a program I offer is called Sponsored Residential, and that's an alternative to group homes in the sense that someone with a diagnosis that receives this funding can live with a family. Ah. And then they become a part of the family. So it's not quite fostering, but the individual gets an opportunity to live amongst the family, take family vacations, trips, go to the store in the middle of the day, whereas the group home is still very much so structured. Even though there's person-centeredness there and choice, they still have a lot of structure because there are maybe three or four people living in the home, and then you just have paid caregivers all around, whereas in a sponsored residential home, you're really a part of that family. And you, your quality of life, in my opinion, really begins to improve being a part of a family. And then this family that becomes the sponsor receives ongoing support and training from our organization. Wow. Wow. So this is really fascinating to me, the correlations between what you do and the foster care world, because um, a couple, there are a couple things that you've touched on that I want to revisit. And one of them is um, recognizing so we you serve the the demographics that you're talking about are adults with intellectual disabilities. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. So autism, you know, um, um, Down syndrome, and different other different types of intellectual disabilities. Yes. Okay. So what's fascinating to me is that um, 
there is a high percentage of children in foster care who are on the autism spectrum. And there's different kind of um, theories about why that is. But I have long thought about how stressful it is to raise a child with intellectual disabilities. And you're touching on something here that I have not heard a whole lot about, but I think it's really important for us, especially when, you know, we're in the foster parenting world, um, where, where, how could we support parents who have children early, you know, much earlier than adults who need the support, right? How can we come around families and help be that village. And that's what I'm hearing, that, that you're saying that um, people who are raising children with intellectual disabilities need a lot more support than they're getting. Is that? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, you know, take, you know, and I have a, a mother that I've supported since, I think, 2016 in another state. And one of the things that we were able to have a raw conversation about is, you know, think about when you're carrying a child from, you know, conception and you begin to formulate these ideas and dreams that you have for this child. And then suddenly you're faced with the fact that none of these things are going to occur. That's a loss. Yes. That is a loss in a sense. So now, according to how that parent processes, that loss will determine how they're able to move forward. Some parents just tuck it aside, keep going. They're able to cope and do well. Some aren't. So take into account the ones that aren't able to cope and figure out, you know, how to get past those dreams and ideas that they've, you know, built upon all these months and years to now giving them, you know, the person what they actually need in order to thrive. So, you know, if they don't realize that they need to cope and stuff, they're not going to know to reach out for the help. So that's why when you see it, you know, in my experience, when, even when I was an educator, I would, you know, have some of those conversations, you know, I always ask the parents, how are you? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. even though I'm there to support the person that has the diagnosis and the funding source, we can't heal someone and place them back in the same environment. You know, that's a, a saying that I like to use to, as a byproduct, families also receive my support right. because, the goal is for for me is for you to not always need me. I want to empower you in what to do when I'm not present, mm-hmm. when another professional is not present. I want you to feel empowered as a parent that you have the tools to raise your you know your child. Even if you had a hiccup, we all do. It's okay, mm-hmm. you know. And that's what you one thing I think with fostering that um, a lot of the parents who you know have to put their children into foster care for a moment, while those children are there, we need to be providing support to these parents so Mm -hmm. these children can go back home. Yeah, yeah. And this gets into a couple of um, uh, things that would be worth following more. And one of them is when you think about the stress that goes along with parenting or raising a child with special needs, if you consider that through the lens of... um, things like single parenting. I know for me, I have a child with special needs and that involves Mm -hmm. a lot of, um, a lot of therapy and, you know, he went through a lot of round, um, testing and I don't talk about my own kids that much, but I'm just, I just want to paint this picture that, that, um, there's a lot more to it than just your typical sending your child off to school. Maybe prior to a diagnosis, I know for us prior to diagnosis, 
there were a lot of phone calls from school and a lot of, you know, challenges that I had to drop what I was doing and show up for at school. Now consider right. a single mom who's working an hourly wage, you know, hourly job that, you know, if she has to leave work to go handle something with her intellectually disabled child, she's losing wages. She's getting in trouble with her boss. Um, these are things that we really need to look at and say like, this is the, the playing field is not equal even. And if you've got a parent who is just trying to make it and raise her kid, and then you add the challenges that go along with having a child with special needs, maybe you're at the school more because you're having IEP meetings or you're having intervention, you know, their interventions are having to happen. There's just so much to it. And we, we have to recognize that we have to do more to help preserve these families um, that are facing these really hard things anyway. Like you said, anybody who who finds their their vision of what parenting and raising a family is going to look like um, altered. Um, and then, you know, so so can you talk a little bit about how you go about supporting families? Absolutely. So I want to touch on when you said, you know, maybe a a single parent who's working an hourly wage and, you know, whether the child has special needs or not, you know, let's just, let's just talk about parenting for a second, working an hourly wage as a single parent, something goes wrong. So you now have to make the decision to whether to cut your job and go attend to this child's needs or, you know, in some instances, act like you didn't get the call. Mm-hmm. You know, and those are things that oftentimes people are faced with. And then, of course, now the system has labeled you with neglect. Yes. You know, but what we need to take a look at, I really want the system overall when it comes to the field of human services and social services is to not forget we all learn this stuff in our teaching, in our schooling, to be able to support families, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. So if you start from the bottom, it goes from philosophical, uh, philosophical and um, then it goes to safety needs. That's talking about personal security, employment, things of that nature. We have to self, you know, self-preservation. Yeah. So even as a parent, you know, if you're in that setting, you're like, well, if I don't work, I can't eat either, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. never mind trying to take care of a child, you yeah. know. So those, once that's broken, you can't even get up to the rest of love and belonging, esteem, self-actualization. You can't even get up to any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's what's happening is the needs, the hierarchy of needs is being broken. So you can't get to the rest of it if you're worried about, you know, where your next dollar is going to come from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're seeing that now with the pandemic. Yes. You know, people are having to choose between whether to return to work or being safe and healthy, yeah. whether to open the economy or, you know, re- keep everybody safe and healthy. So now the whole world is feeling it, and a lot of anxiety is occurring across the world because of the fight or flight, you know, yeah. what that occurs internally. So we see all of this in the parenting sector as well, and now we're just seeing it on a global scale. So imagine what we're seeing on a global scale internally for a parent. That's a lot. Yes. Yeah. When you don't have the resources to know how to move forward. Yes. And when you can't send your your kid to school because the schools have closed. Yes. And maybe you the still end have of the a job. The school year was yeah. such a headache. And I was a teacher. <laughs> yeah. You know, I told all of my, you know, my two children's teachers, like, 
I don't know how you all do it. You have your own children and you're expected to still do this stuff from a home. Yeah. I was almost disgusted that our country was making the teachers, in a sense, dance for a check because everyone was feeling this. Why not just continue to pay these educators, call the rest of this school year, yes. uh, you know, a close yes. and let everyone take care of their mental. But no, they had, to, it's almost like they had to force the educators yep. to prove they deserve their check. It was really bothering me, you know, yes. they have yep. to do that. And like you said, you know, you have to now do schooling from home or choose your job. I was still working and although I have a lot of flexibility, I still had to bring someone in, you know, yep. a mother in love, as I call her, to come help with the kids because I still had to work. Yes. I still had families that needed my support yes. outside of home. So then when, when that was going about, I couldn't even hug and kiss my children every day because I was out during the hike, yes. the peak of the pandemic. So I had to keep them in a separate part of the house. Yep. to make sure I wasn't exposing them. You know, I had children and someone over the age of 70. That was yep. two of the most vulnerable populations when everything came out. So now they felt yeah. neglected yes. because mommy couldn't give them hugs, but mommy was out helping other kids, you know? Yes. So yep. all of that stuff, you know, and I had to make sure I loved on them in a way it was different, but yep. eventually, you know, they got it. Yeah. But now imagine someone that didn't have that flexibility or didn't have someone that could come in and help them. Now they're deemed neglectful because their kids aren't attending school. Yes. Maybe they couldn't afford the internet bill to log in every day. Yeah. You know, so, right. you know. Well, and I, I have the, I have every resource at my disposal. I am a highly privileged person with multiple computers in my house. I could not handle the stress myself of making my yes. kids do the work. And they didn't, they showed up for maybe 10% of their online schooling mm -hmm. because I yeah. had so many, I have, um, I have five children, uh, four of them needed my involvement in order to do online school. They couldn't right. do it independently. And there's no way that I could attend to four kids who were also dysregulated because of the lack of structure, because of so many mm -hmm. things. And so, um, gosh, if I were judged by my parenting based on how well my kids showed up for online school, I would be in a lot of trouble. Oh, wouldn't we all? And, we're, <laughs> and, and I'm considered a quote unquote, the professional, yeah, you know? So, yeah, and yeah. I had people on social media as I was expressing this stuff. They're like, you were a teacher. You got this. You know how to do this. That's not the point. I'm not thinking about me. No, I'm thinking about the people that don't have my resources. Yes. And that's what separates me and, and, and uh, drives me to do what I do and be a part of everybody's village because I'm a voice for the voiceless. Yes. Everybody doesn't have this language and know that this is wrong. Right. I know it's wrong. So I'm going to say something. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this is why coming back to foster care, um, my audience is predominantly foster parents. And mm -hmm. I have been on a long learning curve since I first got interested in foster care, gosh, 15 years ago, to becoming a foster parent, um, to being in this world now and having had a lot of kids come and go and having gotten to know parents of kids in our care, getting to know their stories. Um, and the narrative for me has changed pretty dramatically from the one dimensional dehumanizing view of people whose children are in foster care to recognizing there is so much going on here. And, um, you know, not that you know, not that every person whose kids are in foster care are victims of a system. A lot of times they're not, they're, they're 
their addicts. And to be, I'll be completely honest with you, most of the children we've had in care came from middle class families or upper middle class families, but they got uh-huh. into drugs and, you know, burned bridges with their family members. And so by the time their kids needed foster care, they didn't have family members who were willing to step up for them. And, right. you know, that's a whole other thing, but that uh-huh. doesn't change the fact that um, everything that we're talking about is one aspect of foster care that, that if we would get our, our heads and our hearts around getting upstream of families that are facing crises, families that are in crisis, um, single moms or single dads or moms and dads with mental illness, um, Mm-hmm. A lot of the kids we've had there, it wasn't about financial means, but it was about uh, mental health issues and needing support. And you, you mentioned calling in your mother in love. Did you say, I love that term, Yes. <laughs> and, but what about when you don't have somebody to call in and that's a whole other thing. So, um, I'm kind of talking to foster parents right now and I'm saying if you care and if I care about foster care, how can we actually begin to support families before their children need out of home placement? How can we support them in their homes? And I think a huge aspect of it is, is to offer to come in and babysit. I mean, be there when, you know, mom has to go to work and kids are out of school or, or whatever. What are some other ways that you could imagine, and I know I'm kind of throwing this at you, so you may, you may not have thought about it, but, um, what are some ways that just the everyday average, well-meaning person who, who cares about foster care could get involved with supporting a family facing crisis before the children are removed for neglect or yeah. I think that's where it comes back to village Mm -hmm. because me having the heart that I do, I don't necessarily have to wait until someone is screaming for help to help. Yeah. If I'm a part of, you know, the world, I pay attention. I'm very observant of neighbors who I see kind of walking by with kids. Even when I'm in the grocery store, if I see a mommy or daddy that looks like they're just trying to pick out some nice veggies and baby girl, baby boy is just giving them a rough time, I will introduce myself and ask, you know, do you need assistance? Mm-hmm. Like, would you like me to hold them while you yeah. figure this out? Yeah. I'm that person to do that. On the other side of that, we have to be acceptable of that kind of help when mm-hmm. it's offered mm-hmm. because things are very different now compared to a few years ago. I think a few years ago, it was nothing to, you know, offer to assist someone, but now we have so many, you know, things we have to be cognizant of, yeah. you know, danger wise and things. Mm-hmm. But with that, you know, you just make yourself available. If they accept the help, wonderful. If they don't, you try. Yes. The person that wants your help will eventually say yes. So don't stop trying to help. So that's really, you know, tapping into villages if you want to be a resource in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have people that work in my office and I always ask the ones with children, you know, is everything okay? You know, I, one of the young ladies, um, recently going through a separation, I offered to watch her kids. She was surprised, but I get it. I didn't always have all of the resources I have now. Mm -hmm. Someone had to offer to watch mine. And every now and then, even though I'm, again, have all the resources I have, flexible schedule and things, I will just keep going. So every now and then I have an uncle who will say, you know, let me get the kids. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) things like that help. 
It matters. Yes. And it shouldn't take being a paid caregiver to provide support. I really yes. hope we can just get back to that foundation of village yes. and just helping people where help is needed. And we have the, the means to help them. Yes. And help doesn't always mean financial, you know? Right. In fact, I a would resource, say most of it doesn't. I mean, it's, yeah. it's that single mom at your church or that single yes. mom down the street or that single dad down the street. Um, and it's, it's, um, the children, somebody in your child's class. I mean, if you make a little Mm -hmm. effort, you can get to know the kids and the families in your school and, um, and putting yourself out there. Yeah. And, and people can become each other's village. I've done babysitting exchanges with other parents and, you know, Mm -hmm. where it's not even about paying a babysitter. We, I babysit for their kids. They babysit for mine. We help each other out. Um, so it's that thinking about being the village and it's not just parents of, you know, it's not just single parents that that is obviously a vulnerable population in a lot of ways, but it's also, if you know, parents of children with special needs, they need your support. Yeah. And and I won't discount married parents either. I went into a situation where, you know, they were married. Mom was primarily home because, you know, her son had autism and dad was working all day. Well, I went in with the intention of um, I was providing uh, therapeutic support to this young man, but I noticed right away the disconnect. You know, he walked in and he's still on the phone. Mom's just getting everything right. They're just in the hustle and bustle of life. So I offered, you know, I said, hey, let me watch, you know, the other one. I wasn't there to provide support for the other son. He was, you know, he's just in the home. But I offered to watch him so they could have a date night Yeah. because... Keeping that together keeps the family together. You know, it's just those little moments that sometimes parents that are, you know, married, they don't get, you know, that time often. So Mm -hmm. I'm very, you know, strongly uh, involved in supporting single parents, but I don't want to discount the married and couple parents that need a little break, too, because that happened to be an instance where one parent was working and the other one wasn't. But the stay-at-home mom is just as busy as the working father. Mm-hmm. But now imagine both parents working out of the house and they're coming home in the evening and still trying to do that same hustle and bustle, help with homework, yeah. dinners, baths. And then uh, now you're crawled out to sleep. So there's no time for a moment for them to stay connected as friends and partners and things like that. So yeah. just being a resource in that way is very important. Yes. Yeah, that's so good. So I hope people listening are thinking about ways that they can get involved and really recognize it as being a way of preserving families and preventing um, the the downstream effects of not having support, not having a village, you know, living kind of at the edge of your means and then finding yourself facing something like a child with special needs or um just a child in general. I mean, (laughs) there's so much that parenting requires. And, you know, I know that for me, my worst moments as a parent, and we all have them, moments that I would be horrified for the world to see, you know, horrified Mm -hmm. for a social worker to have come in and, you know, heard me screaming at my children. Um, Those are the moments when I'm feeling the most stressed and the most mm-hmm. alone in what I'm doing. And, yes. um, and so I think, you know, really recognize and, and talking to foster parents, I think there's this, I hear this, 
um, pervasive viewpoint among especially new foster parents. It seems to be mostly among new foster parents who have not had the opportunity to get to know the parents of the children in their care that really, um, demonizes the parent and, um, mm-hmm. you know, certainly judges and, and I will be completely transparent that I have been that foster parent in the past where before mm-hmm. getting to know people and getting to know their stories, I would just be like, wow, you know, they were so neglectful and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't even need to get into all that, but, um, but now I realize it's, that's way too simple and it's way too, um, one-sided and we have to do better as foster parents. And I think there's a lot that we can do to support the reunification process. That is also a part Mm -hmm. of family preservation because there are times, I mean, I just interviewed a gentleman, um, two podcast episodes ago, and he talked about the years he spent between when he became a father at the age of 30 and when he got clean from drugs and alcohol at the age of 43. And he talked about the fact that there were 13 years of his life when he was not able to be a good father to his kids or to care for them well. And he said, I'm grateful for foster care because my kids were in a safe place while my wife and I went into rehab, got clean and got mentorship and got a village and came out and got their kids back And he said, you know, foster care provided my kids a safe place while I got my act together. And that's what foster care is supposed Uh to be. That's what it's supposed to be. Um, Unfortunately, right now, there seems to be just a a way of viewing foster care that it's a way of adopting children. And you're talking to a woman who has adopted five children from foster care. So I'm not, (laughs) I know that there are times when that's the only, you know, permanent outcome available, but I just think there's a lot more we can do. And, um, and I'd love to see foster parents taking more of an active role in supporting efforts to reunify kids and keep their families intact. That's a good point. And I think even if, you know, adoption has to be, you know, what the answer is, explore if it's a possibility to make them a part of the family still, because maybe it is in that child's best interest to permanently remain with you. But is it safe that they at least remain, you know, have some sort of contact, keep a relationship there, you know, just for communication sake, maybe holidays, birthdays, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. sports, whatever, just to keep them as a part of the village. Village is something I am very strong on. And like you said, immediately turning to demonizing the um, natural parents, that's not going to do anything to highlight your role in this person's life right right now. That's right. You know, if anything, a little down the line, they may kind of look at you a little bad because you've done that. So it doesn't doesn't do anything for you. And I would hope that your um, ego, because that's what's talking when it's demonizing a natural parent, Mm-hmm. is in a safe place that you don't feel like you have to do that. I think overall having to demonize another person's characteristics to highlight your own mm-hmm. is a, you know, is a different situation that needs to be addressed. Yes. And we need to take inventory to make sure we're not doing that when we're claiming to be helping someone. Yes. Because that's a backhanded help. Yeah. So yeah. you know, in that I think the the young man that you were speaking of, I love that he was able to admit that 
you know, because that's what fostering is to my understanding is a safe space for that time being to give the parents a chance to get those resources like we were talking about earlier, get some mm-hmm. parent training, mm-hmm. get stabilized with uh, housing and employment yeah. and get it, you know, get things on track so that they can learn to be the parent that these children need, yes. you know, and if you're doing this for the right reasons, I would admit, I would, you know, guess that you would try to support them in getting that right too. Yes. Yeah. And so fostering should be a bridge, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if it's done right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I got a really good firsthand glimpse with one family of exactly how hard it was for this young mom to reunify with her daughter. Um, and over the period of time, over the year or so, I think that I got to know them and we were involved um, as foster parents with their case, I got to see how every, it was it was just an uphill battle for her. And everything from so she's given so she's single, she is she has a child who's pre she's in preschool. So or not even in preschool. She's like preschool. So she's not old enough to go to school. And, um, and she, um, didn't have family support locally. Um, and she had gotten a job as part of her reunification plan. She was in treatment for substance abuse, which meant, and, and ironically, she was not actually a substance abuser, but, her precipitating event that ended up with her child in, in foster care involved uh, prescription drugs that were part of her mental well-being, like her mental health plan. So, um, something had gone, gone wrong with the prescription drugs that she took. And anyway, she, um, she didn't have local support. And then her, she was so ashamed that she couldn't bring herself to ask her friends for help. And that's another thing that we really have to recognize because I have heard this from every parent who I've gotten to know whose kids have been in my care. The weight of shame is so debilitating and we have to come alongside them and, and do what we can to lift that shame. Um, right. Yeah. And, and anyway, so for her, it ended up being, um, they were reunified. I actually wrote a letter on her behalf to the judge appealing for her reunification. They were reunified. And then it was daycare. She can't get into daycare for two more weeks. She has to work, you know, and that's when we were like, bring her by. And so for a couple of weeks, she was at our house a lot of the time because her mom needed to go to work. Daycare wasn't ready. You know, her paperwork hadn't gotten through whatever, but these are the practical things that we don't think about. All of it goes into, into helping a parent be successful. And, um, we have to be thinking about it and we have to do better. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I agree with that. And, you know, like I said, it really just takes into becoming one with self. You know, I like to take the um, holistic approach on some of this stuff, Yes, but um, people call it holistic. I call it just being aware of yourself and making sure that you have what you need so that you can be the best parent, the best foster parent, the best village supporter, the best neighbor, whatever, mm-hmm. to whoever's around you. Yeah. Um, children are little innocent people, and through our interactions, that can make or break the type of person this turns out to be. Yes, yeah. What is your kind of well-being recipe for yourself? How do you keep yourself healthy and, and uh 
and uh, I don't know, just, yeah, healthy and, and mentally well. <laughs> so I, I select things. I'm very selective about what I listen to, what I choose to spend my time on and things of that nature. So I, and I do adore music. I love music more than anything. So I um, take moments to listen to music throughout the day. Um, that keeps my energies calm, especially if I feel kind of heightened and maybe something is making me anxious. I'll change the type of music I'm listening to, maybe dim some lights. I make time to exercise pretty much every day. Today I'm kind of, I'm debating, but I'm sure I'm going to get it in. <laughs> um, um, and I, you know, and one thing that I wanted to make sure my children knew was mommy time because I teach them to take time for themselves as well. Mm -hmm. They play with each other. They love each other dearly, but I teach them that it's okay if you want to be by yourself for a moment. So if you want to be by yourself for a moment, go into your room. That doesn't mean try to make everyone in the playroom be quiet because that is a common area. But I teach them that it's okay to ask for that time off to yourself. And I did that by saying, you know, if mommy's in her bathtub, that's mommy time. Mommy doesn't want to answer any questions right now, mm-hmm. and that's okay. So I teach them that, because, and I needed them to know that because I needed that time. Yes. So I definitely make that time, and it's maybe an hour. You know, mm-hmm. I still see the little feet walking back and forth saying I'm done. <laughs> but, <laughs> but they've learned to respect that time. Yes. Um, I get adequate rest. I eat well. You know, everybody loves, you know, maybe a cookie, a cake here and there, Mm -hmm. but it's restricted because, you know, Mm -hmm. sugar, that's a whole nother topic. Oh my gosh. But, (laughs) you know, just making sure you're well to yourself. If you're well to yourself, you'll have a wellness output. And then those around you can't help but respect that because that's what you do to yourself. The way you treat your body and the things you put in your mind um, and the things that you put out are the biggest form of love to yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. If people want to learn more about what you're doing or they want to connect with you, maybe to follow up on anything they're hearing here, where could somebody find you? Absolutely. So my website is www.learnwithleaf.com, L-E-A-R-N-W-I-T-H-L-E-A-F.com. And my email address is info at learnwithleaf.com. Okay, perfect. And you also host... Um, a radio show. Do you want to talk about that? I do. And it's called Professor Whitney in the Village. <laughs> I'm really <laughs> serious about this village thing. And it's a non-traditional show for non-traditional families with everyday challenges. We air live on Sundays at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Praise Radio. And you can find more information about that on my website. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm a new fan, but I'm definitely a fan. So <laughs> thank you so much for everything thank you're doing you. and for taking the time today to help us uh, think through some really important things. So I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank okay. you for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to my conversation with Whitney King. To learn more about her work and listen to her radio show, Professor Whitney and the Village, visit learnwithleaf.com. If you like a Fostered Life podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you access your favorite podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. And if you're enjoying this resource, please consider becoming a patron of A Fostered Life at patreon.com slash afosteredlife. For more information and resources for foster parents, visit afosteredlife.com where you'll find blog posts, recommended reading, YouTube videos, and social media links, all designed to help foster parents feel more equipped for their foster care journey. 
If you're a foster parent who's feeling like you're out there on your own, consider joining the Flourishing Foster Parent, a community designed to encourage, equip, and connect foster parents. You can find info on the Flourishing Foster Parent at afosteredlife.com FFP. It's my prayer that no foster parent ever feels like they're going at it alone. One more thing. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate A Fostered Life on iTunes. It would help me out so much. Thanks for listening and thanks for caring about foster care.